so much in that song that is um, helpful for us as we think about what our life is to be all about, convicting and also uh, reminding us again of what our aspirations are to be, to be living for Christ, to be serving Him as chief as our chief delight to seek His pleasure. This morning as we turn in Genesis chapter 3, we remember how God has opened that path to us. How do we come near to the Lord? That way has been, the way of law-keeping has been closed to us because in Adam and Eve we sinned and we are now apart from Him, cut off from Him because of the curse of sin as we see it all around us. But this morning we look at the foundational truth, again looking at foundations, the foundational truth concerning how we are reconciled to God and God to us, how He can draw near to us. We read of the atonement or the payment for sin. Sin had to be paid for so that we might have restored relationship with God and we see how that came uh, to, to be as we read Psalm 22 last Sunday evening. We saw the prophecy of the coming suffering one who would be forsaken by the Lord. If you read that again today to be reminded, those verses 12 to 18 of Psalm 22, how he suffered, how he was mocked and derided there upon the cross. We're, we're seeing the great price that was paid. And even at this darkest moment, of human history, God's plan for redemption uh, shines forth. It was fulfilled such that he cried out on the cross, it is finished, it is paid in full. That is the message that I have the privilege to proclaim. That is the message that we have the privilege to hear in the church. Some come into the church and they say, boy, I don't know that I found that message all that terribly relevant today. It doesn't seem to go with my, my job. It doesn't seem to go with my, uh, with my life in, in, the, in the home. And it's because uh, the reason we don't see the relevance is because we've, we've forgotten the importance of, of that which is beyond this, this momentary part of our existence. And that is eternity. Where will we spend eternity, with the Lord or apart from Him? There are those two paths, the broad path that leads to destruction and that narrow way that God sets before us. How will we enter in? By our faithful walking or, as we see this morning, because of our Savior's perfect sacrifice? We want to see that this morning. God in His sovereignty shows power, shows His power to bring life out of death. And we consider how he does that in Genesis chapter 3. Looking at verses 20 and 24, really verse 20 we looked at last week where we see Adam and Eve responding in faith. They receive that curse and uh, the curse of sin and, and yet when God says there is going to be a future for them, an offspring, they respond in faith and we see that and we pick that up there, verse 20. Here then the reading of God's own holy word. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. 
He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. This is the word of God. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of God stands before us for our instruction and for life. Brothers and sisters, there are many examples in human history of dark times. I was thinking about that this week as I thought about this moment in human history. The darkest, really, from the human perspective, the darkest moment in history. Hopelessness, despair. Here is judgment set before Adam and Eve, our first parents. Even before life begins, before that next generation comes, we read of the threat to a future. I was thinking about that and thinking about other dark moments in history and thought of the time of the spring and summer of 1940 when the world was under attack, as it were. The United Kingdom was in the crosshairs of the Nazi war machine. Neville Chamberlain, the prime minister at the time, was seeking to appease Hitler, trying to give him this and give him that and to somehow find a peace agreement. That didn't work. Hitler only saw that as a reason to press on because he was evil, because he was wicked, and he wanted to take more land. And all of England was shaken. They were scared. Chamberlain's failed policy led to his being removed as prime minister. And a new prime minister came to power, that of Winston Churchill. Upon gaining the office, he immediately resolved to encourage the people by setting before them the call to arms. His resolve became the resolve of England. He said that he had nothing to give but blood, toil, sweat, and tears, and that he would give all that he had. And he told them that he was going to lead the nation by his commitment. He promised also to those who were listening outside or beyond England that they would fight on the beaches, on the landing grounds, on the fields and streets, in the hills, and that they would never surrender. In the third speech that he made before the House of Commons, he, he said this, We shall fight with unparalleled determination. The whole fury and might of the enemy must very soon be turned on us. Hitler knows that he will have to break us on this island or lose the war. If we can stand up to him, all Europe may be freed and the life of the world may move forward into broad, sunlit pastures. But if we fail, then the whole world, including all that we have known and cared for, will sink into the abyss of a new dark age, made more sinister and perhaps more protracted by the lights of perverted science. Let us therefore brace ourselves to our duties and so bear ourselves that if the British Empire and its commonwealth last for a thousand years, men will still say, this was their finest hour. Now, as we know, England did stand up to Nazi Germany, and with the help of other nations, there was victory. 
But I want us to think about that story today in light of what we're reading here in Genesis chapter 3. Because I want us to ask ourselves a question. Do we look within at the darkest moments of life to find strength, to find hope for a future, or do we look outside of ourselves? Today, there are many different worldviews, many different systems, and most will say, well, we look within. We do the best we can. We hope for the best, hope against hope. We don't really have any solid foundation for our hope of a future, but we press on nonetheless. Well, here, in this lowest point of history as it pertains to humanity, there's no, there are no rousing speeches, no resounding Uh, speeches, only resounding defeat. And who then must come to help? That is the message of the church, dear people of God. You say, well, we've heard this before. Well, we need to hear it again and again. As we come to celebrate Lord's Supper, we need to remember where our hope for eternity is found. It's found in God who came to deliver We must understand how he delivered, for that also matters. We don't simply say, well, we look to God and and he does his part and we do ours and and it makes for a great partnership and, and we can just hope that it's enough. Well, Adam and Eve, after they sinned, new judgment was upon them and they attempted to hide from the Lord, but no one can hide from him. We note how the Lord came to our first parents. He came not in fury and in attempt to destroy or rather to destroy, but he came calling them to consider what they had done. Calling them to consider the depth of this hour, if we could put it that way. The darkness of this time and the consequences thereof. And he urged them to repent of their sin as that curse is pronounced. And he reminds them, or he declares to them for that first time, there is a deliverer who is to come. Here we talk about the first presentation of the gospel, Genesis 3.15. The message is not one of looking in. That's not the good news. Well, just look in and buckle up and make this your finest hour. Rather, it is a message of God's provision for our sin that we might be assured of forgiveness and of restored relationship with him. Any other message is not good news. We see that in the New Testament when Paul says in Galatians that if anyone preaches a gospel that is not in line with the gospel that he proclaimed, namely that of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, let him be accursed. The only true gospel points to God. The good news is that he has made the way that we might be at one with him. Atonement, at one with him. Look how that is seen in Genesis 3 verse 21. That's where we want to spend most of our time this morning. Verse 21 reads, and the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. 
What a strange verse to to just drop in at the opening of human history of all the things that could be said, of all the, the, the important pieces that might be set before us. Why this? Well, let's look at what it teaches us this morning, what it's saying to us as the Word of God unfolds. We recognize that at the very beginning, we get just a glimpse of what God is going to do in the face of our sin. But it teaches here this morning, firstly, that man, in order to be restored to right relationship with God, would need sacrifice. Sacrifice would need to be made. How do we see that? Well, we'll look at that in a moment. We'll see this, that the man and the woman tried to, we saw this already, they tried to cover over their sin, over their rebellion with fig leaves. Back in verse 7, we read that of chapter 3. And that was not sufficient. That was not going to deliver them. And that is what what God says of any of man's ways, of any religious system today that, that attempts to be reconciled to God on man's own attempts. He says these are only fig leaves. The fact here is that skins are provided, which tells us that blood had to be shed for an animal had to be given. A sacrifice needed to be made that sin might be covered. This image of blood being shed is seen throughout the Old Testament sacrificial system. God sets up that system. The blood sacrifices, the animal sacrifices were done in obedience to God's command. Sin called for death and animal sacrifices pointed to God's plan to provide atonement through the shedding of blood, through a substitutionary atonement, through a substitution. The Bible tells us that because man sinned, that sacrifice that was to be made would have to be sinless. A man, a human without sin, for humanity is the one who has sinned. Neither our first parents after one sin nor we after many sins can establish, reestablish holiness or reestablish relationship with God. It's been lost to us. Today we look at this word once again to realize this has a relevance for eternity. You say, well, how is that going to mean anything to me tomorrow? or the next day, or the day after that. I say in this, this is your confidence that you have a substitute who has fully paid for all your sins, that you might rest, that you might be at peace with God, that when you go out this week, when you sin and fall short, you once again remember and confess that Christ as Lord and Savior has covered over all your sins, that you might walk before the Lord, not fearing death. The teaching of salvation through substitutionary atonement, substitutionary sacrifice, is something that sets Christianity apart from all other religions. If truth be told, we all want to be saved by our goodness. We do things that we know to be right, and we think, well, the Lord certainly must look upon me with favor now because look at what I've done for him. And yet, we recognize that those works are 
what God has prepared in advance for us to do and he's given his spirit that we might be led to do them, at least if we are thinking properly by the work of the spirit and we do these out of gratitude for what God has done for us. When the prophet Isaiah spoke of the coming favor of the Lord in Isaiah 61, he declared that all people of God would rejoice in him for he would clothe them with salvation, with the robes of righteousness. And that points back to our passage. It also points ahead to the coming of the Son of God who offered himself for the sin of the world. As we read in 1 John 2 verse 2, God's removal of sin from his sanctuary, from his holy sanctuary, would be total, for nothing evil can enter into his presence and live with him. Psalm 5 tells us that. Revelation 21, 27 says, nothing impure can enter into heaven. The wondrous work of God is this, that he sent his son to offer a perfect sacrifice, to be accursed that sin might be punished in him and salvation offered to those who believe in him. Sin must be punished. Sin must be removed. Without this action taken, there can be no paradise. If we go back to Winston Churchill's speech, remember those words of how he talked that Christian civilization would be destroyed if the perverted science of Germany won the day. If that perverted science, if that sin was not vanquished, there was no hope for the future. Now, he wasn't making a case for heaven on earth, but the word spoke the truth that without the defeat of evil, good is not established. Good is still under threat. We could borrow those words and apply them to the scene in the garden and for the future. For God's plan to redeem the world, sin had to be destroyed. The redeemed residents of the coming eternal kingdom had to be thoroughly purified in order to enter in. The truth of God's word is that judgment is coming. The good news of the gospel is that God has sent one who has bore that judgment that we might be reconciled to him. He wants sinners everywhere in all places to repent. That's the message that we need to proclaim, that we need to hear, that of repentance and faith, that we might know the way to life. Our hope does not rest upon man, but upon God. The peace of the post-war West has not brought heaven on earth. It has caused world war hostility to cease, perhaps, but it leaves humanity still needing to be purified. People have not been brought closer to God. In fact, much, if we can use this term for sin, much perverted science is yet around us and coming in ever-increasing measure to our governing bodies. What is needed, what is foundational, is the proclamation of Christ as the only one who can cover over sin and establish lasting peace between God and man. We see something else in the passage this morning, and that is going on. We see that God drove man out of the garden. He drove man out of the garden. Verse 24, 
which was both a picture of his coming judgment, but also an act of mercy. And you say, how so? In this way, in justice, he cast out evil out of his kingdom. It cannot exist there. It cannot remain there. But in keeping with his mercy, he did not allow Adam and Eve to take of the tree of life that they might forever be in that fallen state. That they might not partake, that they might not take of the tree of life. It's interesting in the original how it stops there, and it's caught in our English translations. He says, the Lord says, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. And it stops. It's almost as if God is saying, we can't even imagine what that would look like. What a, what a, leftover consequence of sin. What a horrible consequence that would be. He says, lest they do that, and then he interrupts himself and says, no, no, that will not happen. For they must not remain in this fallen state forever. Death comes. And as we confess, death brings an end to our sinning and is an entrance into a new and joyful existence. It is a strange but wonderful mercy that God kept our first parents from partaking of the tree of life. He kept them from that position that they might not remain under sin's curse in the body, but look for new bodies, new existence, which will not hold the mortality of the curse They and we in Christ will be made new. What has God done in giving this promise? What is foundational for us to know and to live by? Well, God has provided salvation here. We see it in shadow form. He is proclaiming one to come who would give himself, that we might know him as Father, that we might pray to him as Father. When Jesus' disciples asked him to teach them how to pray, he said, pray in this way when you pray. Say, our Father. That is the glorious and wondrous truth that he has established through the giving of his life. Opening the way that the one who has created all things the one who has been offended by our sin has now been reconciled to us that we might call him Father. We see here in this dark hour that God is for us. He's removed sin from the garden in the beginning and protected our first parents in the world outside the garden and continues to do so from generation to generation giving faith and hope and love through the clear proclamation of the gospel, through the clear proclamation of the promise for the future. Paul takes it up this way in Galatians chapter 4 when he says, in the fullness of time God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, that he might redeem those under the curse and offer life. His sinless son, came to that garden of betrayal, the garden of Gethsemane. There, to be taken away, 
bound to the cross of shame and judgment. There proclaimed forsaken by his own lips. And there we see how redemption has come to us full and free. For there he made atonement for sin, declaring it is finished. All has been paid in full for your sins as you trust in Him. That is where we look. We do not look within. We look there to that darkest moment for the Son of God. There upon the cross and sin's consequence and the judgment that He bore. Remembering what He took upon Himself. And this was mankind's finest hour. What do I mean by that? What I mean is this, that he came as the second Adam. When Pilate declared in John 18 or John 19, behold, the man, he was saying something far greater than he could understand. Jesus was the man. God and man giving himself, fully trusting the Lord, not turning to the right nor to the left, and as second Adam Winning, obtaining life for us through the payment, perfect payment for all our sins. That is foundational for us to know. It is that which is being denied in the church today in many places. Where so much of what is being said to make things relevant, as it were, is to look within. Look within and do what you can. And there is so little assurance, so little hope that things will turn out right for they are looking in the wrong place. Indeed, we must look to the Lord Jesus Christ and nowhere else in faith for this is God's great salvation. And one day we will see that the doom that was certain to crush us will give way to the finest hour for man, our recreation through the powerful hand of God, our unconquerable Savior. As we remember that here this morning, we come with confidence to the table of the Lord, which he sets before us and says, come, all you who are weak, all you who are weary, all you who are burdened with sin, come, for there is peace made by the shedding of Christ's blood. Amen. Father in heaven, as we think upon this foundational truth of what our Lord and Savior has done, what you have declared from before the foundations of the world, from eternity, we come to you with thanksgiving and praise. For there is no hope for us apart from Christ. Indeed, our darkest hour, that moment of the fall and its shadow cast over the centuries and millennia sets before us and lays there upon the tomb and your light shines there upon the tomb upon the resurrection the second Adam your son paying for sin that in him we might not perish but have everlasting life O Lord may that give us great peace 
Give us great confidence to draw humbly before this table of fellowship which you have set before us. Increase our faith. Increase our joy. And lead us to loving obedience. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.